Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. It is the ultimate in training for commercial brokers. Learn more at CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Well, today we're going to talk about retail, uh, retail investment sales, distress sales, uh, all about retail. Please welcome my guest. This is Jim Costello. He's Senior VP with Real Capital Analytics. Jim, good to see you. Thanks for being with us again. Always great to be here. Well, Jim, uh, we were talking before the show and, and I was asking you, you know, uh, about what are people curious about when it comes to retail real estate? And you guys track all types of properties all over the world, it seems, uh, on, on um, capital markets. And in retail, a lot of people are looking uh, to, to buy distressed properties, right? You know, what do you hear out there? What are you seeing? Yeah, distress is the biggest theme at the moment. Everybody wants a steal, not a deal. They want to come in and scoop up something on the cheap in the aftermath of the downturn. Retail, uh, in the minds of a lot of folks, kind of fits that bill because the retail sector has seen a lot of trouble during the downturn. Uh, the challenge is that you know there's not a whole lot of distressed sales so far. And in fact, the distressed sales we've seen, it's only been two, two and a half percent of total sales of retail properties. And in a sense, that's what retail has been dealing with even before COVID. That's one problem we have in the market today. Everybody thinks about everything in terms of what's COVID doing to it. But there were problems and opportunities that were around before COVID. And retail, you had an ongoing obsolescence of a lot of retail properties before the COVID crisis. And, and you had a sort of a, a slow, steady drumbeat of distressed sales as those assets are trading out of the bottom of the market. You know, there, there's been some additions to that during this crisis period, but it's not like the distress that investors saw following the financial crisis. There, you, know, you had a cash flowing property that couldn't refill the debt portion of the capital stack. And so they went into default. Somebody could scoop it up on the cheap and ride that cash flow to victory. Today, it's fundamental distress. You've lost JCPenney, Sears, and uh, um, you know, oh, Montgomery Ward, whoever, as your anchor tenant. And retenanting that space becomes more problematic in a world where either you're in a market that the job base from the 1970s is gone and you don't have the same kind of personal income anymore. Or maybe you're in a high-income area and the folks are shopping online. And so you know, the realization of consumer activity and the local mall is not as intense as in the past. Yeah. So 2.5% of retail sales is distressed. And so that's similar to the to years past? Yeah, but before COVID. I mean, there's a little bit of a spike in the data. I mean, it's a little bit noisy. It's up one month. It's down another. But mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, you know, there was a distressed situation for retail before COVID and, you know, COVID accelerated a little bit, but you know, honestly, you know, some of the challenges we see here, it's not necessarily a COVID issue. It's just the fundamental challenges of dealing with some of these properties that were already becoming obsolete. How does that percentage distressed sales percentage of overall sales compare uh, to hotel? Yeah. Now hotel is a much bigger story. Hotel, you have a, a contraction of demand that everybody looks at and understands that there's an element of it that's temporary. 
you know, you didn't have that slow, steady drumbeat of negative news about hotel over the previous five years. In the end of 2019, there were concerns about hotels. You had you know, some challenges with loans on a uh, high-profile asset in Times Square in New York uh, that uh, caused a lot of hand-wringing about the pricing in the hotel sector. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as uh, the hotel market was reeling from that and reeling from competition from the likes of VRBO and Airbnb, and then all the new supply that was coming in, you have all that coming together at once. And then, yeah, then they start kicking the man when he's down with COVID hitting and nobody traveling anymore. So everything came through at once. So, I mean, there's been some recent quarters where distressed sales were up to 30% of hotel property sale. It, it was a case, though, of, you know, the numerator and the denominator moving. Uh, you know, you can have 30% uh, of the market you know, sounds like a major amount, but part of the issue is that the market really pulled back. Uh, but nonetheless, the hotel market, there has been more in the way of distressed uh, sales of loans, uh, rather sales of distressed assets, you know, uh, you know from, from a distressed loan situation uh, that we're not seeing to the same degree in other property types. There is, you know, an understanding that, you know, we're going to get through this at some point, but I just can't continue to fund this thing in the near term. And so that's that's one area where I think a number of investors are hopeful that they can buy up something on the cheap, you know, put a little bit of capital into it to keep it afloat, and then ride the wave of recovery as everybody else becomes like me and becomes fully vaccinated and willing to travel again. <laughs> so if two percent, two point five percent of the retail sales, uh, it's only two two point five percent distress. That means there's a lot of retail that's really doing well. I think that surprises people. Well, here's the thing. That's, you know, sales uh, of a dis out of distressed debt situations. Okay. The, the challenge is that uh, we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, there's, there's a much bigger lump of things where it's a loan that's potentially distressed that nothing's happened yet. Yeah, it's, it's loans that are in forbearance or some other kind of sticky issue where, you know, the it is likely to end up in a distress situation where it becomes a delinquency and a potential foreclosure type situation. The challenge is that you have lenders not wanting to add fuel to the fire. No lender wants to own commercial real estate. You know, they I mean, maybe some of the debt funds, you know, with their some of their programs look almost like a loan to own situation, but they're you know, at most 10% uh, of the market at times, uh, uh, yeah, they, they really pulled back in, in part of uh, 2020. But nonetheless, uh, all the other lenders, if I'm a banker, I don't want to own a mall in Phoenix. You know, I'm a, I'm a lender. I want the coupon to be paid off. So if I can, you know, pretend and extend and just delay making any decisions, uh, I might come out of this okay. Because if things recover and I provide a little bit of forbearance and then the property owner is able to you know, get things right-sized and cure the loan, uh, I'll come out better than if I foreclose on the asset and then I have to figure out, okay, now how do I manage it and how do I sell it? Because when they do that, they're going to lose uh, capital uh, you know, relative to you know, what their loan was. 
So it's we're not out of the woods. There is that potential distress. And this is interesting because in the last downturn, you know, that, that kind of stuff that was in forbearance, it was almost a foregone conclusion that all of that would eventually become you know, a distressed loan and end up in the whole process of, uh, you know, of uh, foreclosure and the loan workouts. Uh, not this time. You know, this time, you know, there is that unknown. Uh, it will see how it gets resolved. And it may be resolved through other means as well. You know, maybe you have uh, you know, a property owner who sells off a preferred equity share in a building, and that helps them to recapitalize a bit. And with the cash flow that they've got, you know, they're able to at least preserve some upside for themselves and, and you know, but then get below any uh, covenants they had on loan to value, you know, to, to keep everything current. So, you know, th- there's probably other ways through this time as well, uh, in addition to the fact that the trouble is different this time through. Yeah. I mean, rather than have a foreclosure on your on your name um, and in your reputation, who who knows, you might even uh, write a check to, to a buyer uh, to to close a sale with, with nothing left from it. So sounds like you expect more distress to to come up in retail. You know, I, I do expect some more distress, but I don't think all the potential distress out there is necessarily going to end up as distressed loans. You know, there that that overhang where everybody's looking at each other and wondering who blinks first. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of those properties are going to be okay. Some of those properties are, are going to get their uh, revenue situation right sized. We're sitting on uh, a huge amount of personal savings that consumers have built up throughout the crisis, where they've not been going out to restaurants, they've not been going and doing a lot of discretionary spending. That's going to come back, and it's going to come back in a big way with a lot of folks uh, making up for lost time effectively. And, and so you know, that, that's going to help uh, some of these uh, retail locations where there is a bit of uh, uh, distress or uh, potential distress in place. Yeah. And you know, that, that, that can help boost property income and may resolve some of the problems. Nonetheless, some of those there are some properties where that loan and forbearance that's a potentially distressed asset. Um, you know, it's it just uh, everyone. This, for some of them, people see the writing on the wall. Yeah. Well, I was telling someone the other day of all the properties I've sold that I personally owned throughout my career, um, the most exciting sale I ever had was the only one that was distressed. <laughs> I was excited because at the closing, I wrote my last check. I knew. This is it. I'm not. I don't have to deal with this. This tenants and it's my last check. I was so excited. But when I've sold properties that were performing well, all the other ones I've sold performing well, there was always some apprehension about why am I doing this? You mentioned that there's there's some demand that may that may uh, you know jump here uh, from COVID. Um, and you mentioned too that there's there's a lot of sales that are not distressed. Um, so there's some retail, I guess, that's, that's doing re- really well. Now, you, you live in New York, you work in New York, so you've seen a lot of that urban you know, retail. I'm sure some of those areas are, are having a tough time. What do you see? Yeah, you know, it's, it's been an interesting thing. I've, I've stayed in New York throughout the crisis, and you know, there's been a real change. I mean, there's, there's retail that's still open. You know, daily necessity needs are are still filled. 
Uh, and you know, if, if we look you know, beyond that urban environment that I'm in, just to the retail market for the U.S. overall, kind of the shop space, you know, the smaller assets that service the day-to-day needs, you know, deal activity is down in 2020 for those assets, just like everything else, but it did better than the bigger retail. Within the city itself, you know, just looking at not just New York, but all the big urban coastal markets that have that kind of urban storefront stuff. You know, it was actually down even before COVID. Uh, you know, COVID did uh, cause some trouble and you know, pull that down even further. But the real peak for that activity was around 2015, 2016. You you had the the investment thesis in play at time at the time that hey, folks are going to be moving into the cities. There's all kinds of demands. Let's let's take advantage of that. And it played out well for a while with with growing sales volume and growing prices. But it faced some headwinds where people were building luxury housing. And whenever they did that, inevitably, there was a retail component on the ground floor or first two to three floors. And so you had a lot of new developments with empty space, and that empty space was competing. And so that was, on the one hand, in some areas, subtracting from potential income. Uh, Plus, you you had areas where uh, owners had bought an asset and decided to try and raise the retail rents you know, and then crowded out to existing uh, retailers. Uh, so it was pretty chaotic in the, in the ground level for retail in the last, uh, in, in the last uh, seven years or so. Uh, nonetheless, deal volume, you know, had been running at something, um, you know, across these six major mar- markets in the United States. It had been running above $2 billion a quarter uh, from like 2013 to 2016, and then it slipped to you know, anywhere from a billion to a billion and a half. Uh, but now in, in, in COVID land, uh, you know, it was uh, definitely, you know, uh, you know, 500 million or so per quarter. It was not, uh, it, it's, it's not been a robust market. And part of it is that, you know, people were afraid. You know, there, there were a lot of concerns that you had um, some turmoil in the cities at times, you know, social unrest, you know, combined with uh, a demographic wave of people leaving the city. Uh, and, and some of the thought was that it's people who are leaving only temporarily, you know, because there's no point in being in the city when it's not fun and you have to work remotely. Uh, but then there was a demographic wave that was leaving as, as well. Uh, people tend to forget the millennials already before COVID were starting to leave cities. Uh, they were you know, in their late 30s and in 40s in some cases, having kids, settling down. You know, that's just a natural point in life for them to move to the suburbs. Uh, you know, on that point, I do think, though, that uh, the demographics do support more young people in the urban centers moving forward. I mean, once we're done with COVID and all the 20-somethings can come back, I think they will move back to the cities. Um, uh, just in the sense of young folks congregate where the other young folks are. That's how you get a date. And you know, it's, it's more fun in the city than in the suburb. And, and so, you know, I, I think they will be coming back to these areas and, and clustering in these areas. And that's going to help boost uh, 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 economic activity in terms of spending at restaurants and shops and whatnot. I don't want to get a little bit more of your view on that, Jim, because you know, here we are in April of 2021. And gee, last time I talked to you, it seems like it was six months ago, but it was kind of early on in, in covid and, you know, especially being there in New York and, and tracking all types of real estate, including office, 
it seems that my memory was uh, you had a pretty grim uh, outlook for for off large office buildings in major markets and you know and the retail around them. Here we are now, April twenty twenty one. There's been a lot of stimulus. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of people vaccinated, uh, and it seems like it's a, it's it's kind of a moving target. Where are you today on the future of these major uh, urban cities and and their rebound and timing? You know, uh, actually, I think I've been more optimistic about about these urban areas moving forward than others. Uh, you know, throughout the crisis, uh, and the the you know there there was a lot of talk that oh the tech world it's going to leave uh, San Francisco and it's going to move to Miami. Uh, uh, everyone's going to leave New York and they're going to go to you know other cities, and you know I was dismissive of that you know at, at the time, and and part of it just gets into uh, uh, just the perspective I have from having lived through four recessions now, uh, and and one of the one of the things that has always popped up in every recession that I've been through is that the office market's never going to be the same again. Uh, telecommuting is going to erode all the demand and people aren't going to be coming back to the office anymore. So uh, get ready for space per worker to plummet. And you know, that's been a constant theme after every downturn. Now, but what people forget is that there are benefits to getting together that cannot be replicated in all this uh, technology stuff. I mean, sure, you know, we can collaborate to some degree with these online tools, but Running into the director of sales by the uh, coffee machine and you know, just having an offhand conversation about uh, uh, some uh, client or prospect you ran into uh, when you were at the bar the other night, that kind of stuff, you just can't replicate as easily in, in uh, you know, sort of the scheduled world of everything that's uh, done online. Uh, and furthermore, you know, the, the, you know, the thought that everybody's going to move to low-cost markets Personally, I just don't buy that in the sense that you know the tech world wasn't making any money anyway. You know, look at all the the high flying unicorns; uh, they were per, per, uh, pursuing a business philosophy called blitz scaling, trying to achieve scale before they achieve profitability. So the thought that you'd move from a high talent area uh, like you know uh, San Francisco to a low talent area like Miami. Uh, and, and, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to disparage Miami. It's a great city. There's a lot that, uh, going on there, but you don't have incubators like Stanford and other high tech universities kind of, uh, drawing the population base uh, there. That's why, uh, for instance, the IBM Boca systems, uh, operation never really, uh, kicked anything off there versus at the same time you had, uh, Semitech, you know, really kicking into high gear in Austin which was able to get something going because they were able to draw off of the University of Texas. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that you know, these, these areas, uh, they will come back. And part of it is just, you know, there's a clustering of talent and the firms will go where they can find the people. Uh, they're finding it in some locations that are different than San Francisco and New York. Uh, and that's a good thing in my mind. Uh, but you know, there's still going to be big clusters of folks in these areas, and, and those deep labor markets are going to be hard to replicate. And is this comeback uh, for these major cities, um, timing-wise? Is it a year? Is it more? What do you think? Yeah, it's going to take longer. You know, the you know the, where you are in Atlanta, it's going to be easier for folks to hop in their car, 
you know, drive to the office, you know, get inside and have 500 square feet, uh, keeping them away from other folks and feeling safe and secure. Uh, in Manhattan, you know, the notion of cramming into a crowded subway car with hundreds of strangers, uh, you know, that's unnerving to a lot of folks at the moment. Uh, you know, so number one, even after, you know, if, if we have the all clear signal tomorrow, the COVID is dead, you know, it would still take time because it, it's going to take time to kind of get over that psychological barrier. We saw the same thing after 9-11. After 9-11, uh, there was, you know, for a while, some really good growth in the economy that didn't result in the kind of hotel room night demand and uh, airline traffic. Than any that we would have expected, just given the kind of economic growth that was underway. The reason, of course, is that people were still afraid of what might happen next from another type of you know uh, attack, and so there was there was a, a pause in activity. And so even if we got the all clear signal tomorrow that you know COVID's dead, everything's done, you know there still would be a pause for a while. And you saw that pause more firsthand, being right there in New York. How long a pause was it? Well, it wasn't just New York for yeah. for that travel issue. Uh, I mean that right. it was it was it was national and global. Uh, you had you know hotel resorts on the southern coast of uh, California and Orange County that were underperforming just because you know in the middle of February nobody was coming out there in 2002 2003 because they were still was still a stigma effect attached to travel. There was also a stigma effect attached to leasing in certain uh, high profile office towers. Uh, you know, the Willis Tower in Chicago, or, or as I call it, I always call it the Sears Tower, mm -hmm. uh, you know, since I grew up there, uh, you know, people were afraid to, you know, lease space in the upper floors of the building because they saw, you know, everything that had happened in uh, lower Manhattan, and they were worried that they'd be the next target. Uh, Remind me, how long did it take for people to get over it and start traveling again and, and, and office there? It was a good three to four years. I mean, it was a, it, it didn't happen right away. It was it it was a slow, steady erosion of the fear, but you don't get rid of that fear overnight, you know. And it it took it took uh, it, it took time, and it took um, actions to show that you know we're we're serious about these things. It took action in terms of everything they did with the TSA, you communicating to the populace that you know we're we're going after these guys. And you know, trying to instill that sense of of um, of you know safety in in, in the populace, and so that's one thing we need uh, from our leaders that you know to show folks that you know once once we do have it under control, you know, show folks that okay we've got it under control we understand these things now we're going to have protections moving forward so you can. Go about and live your life without fear that the next big virus is going to get you because we're going to be watching out for it and we're going to maintain you know, some cleanliness and public health to prevent it. And that that's uh, that's what I think we'll need once we you know get that sense of safety from people. Uh, I think you know folks will feel more comfortable coming back into more crowded areas. Yeah. But to your point, uh, it takes a little while for people to get over that and to reacclimate to uh, feeling comfortable. Right. Right. So it could take three to four years in some of these major markets. And that's interesting. Well, we started off with, with talking about distress, but there's certainly a lot of retail really doing well. I know we've sold some distressed retail. 
Um, and but we've also sold some retail that's just performing extraordinarily well. Uh, is that something you're seeing around the country? Yeah, that's that's the thing. Yeah, the there's a there's a real big distribution of performance for retail. Uh, the the thing that's going to get the the headlines in the, the Wall Street Journal, it's going to be uh, you know if it bleeds, it leads. You know? right. And in a sense, in a sense, that's more exciting. You know, it's it's uh, uh, so so I get it. Uh, but you know, somebody who you know held something for seven years and got a modest return on it, uh, uh, bully for them. Uh, there is still a lot of that. Uh, uh, but you know, nonetheless, deal activity for retail is down, uh, in part because you know buyers and potential sellers are now wildly apart on price expectations. You know, if if I own a mall of some sort, you know, maybe maybe not a mall, maybe let's just say some sort of like community center, and it's well tenanted and it's cash flowing. I've got one view of it, but a potential buyer is going to be looking at the current market and just knowing that everything on retail is dead, you know, just from the buzz that they hear in the, in the, in the industry. And they're not going to want to jump in except at, you know, rock bottom prices just to kind of cover, you know, the perceived risks that they're undertaking. Uh, it's just a hard thing to take to your investment committee that, uh, oh, we're going to do retail. Nobody else wants to do retail, but, you know, I think we can get a decent yield. Um, it's just a hard sell. Yeah. Well, the contrarian investors sometimes um, do well. And, and one thing I've uh, always found interesting about retail, even if it's distressed, a lot of it is really good real estate, right? It's it's flat, it's cleared, it's utilities, it's well-located, main and main, some of it. Um, so it certainly can have a, uh, a lot of re- other uses and, uh, and, and other ways to uh, rebound even, even new retail, right? Well, that other uses story, that, that's been another one that's been popping up. There's a lot of notions out there that you know maybe we could take some of the the retail that is not doing well, the stuff. I mean, there's like there's assets um, even before COVID that were part of the Centro transaction back in 2007. So kind of you know B grade malls that sold for around $200 a square foot at the time. I've seen some of them trade for like five to seven dollars a square foot now. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> at that price, you're pretty much just buying the land. Uh, but converting it to some other use, you know, in the absence of any regulatory barriers would be a fantastic idea in many cases because of these issues you say. They're in the great location, you know, you, you know, the opportunity to kind of build some some density in there. The problem uh, gets into, number one, you know, is, did it fail because it's in a failing market? You know, if you are in an industrial town in the Midwest, where all the jobs from the seventies that justified building that thing are gone. Maybe there's not much you can do, but then number two, uh, there are regulatory barriers. There are some places where the local city leadership wants retail because they get tax revenue from it and they're not changing the zoning because they still haven't got it, that the world has moved on without them. And, and so, you know, getting them to accept, you know, changing it to some other use uh, might might be a barrier to get in the way. Uh, fewer of those kind of barriers in places like Texas. There's some great examples in Dallas of you know older uh, community center type properties that have been converted uh, to a mix of uses, almost creating a bit of an urban village type setting. So any place where you have uh, a lighter regulatory touch, 
uh, you're going to have a better time kind of repurposing those older properties. Yeah. I, I know of a lot of um, large shopping centers that I think will make uh, excellent mixed-use developments uh, coming soon and, and in our near future. Well, Jim, great information as usual, sir. We appreciate you being on the show again. Always happy to talk and can't wait until I can see you in person for one of these. Yeah, we can't wait as well, Jim. Thank you. And thank you for joining us around the country. Hey, if you will, please share the show um, with uh, your connections and uh, connect with us on your favorite social media. And until next week, when we hope to talk to you again, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. If you appreciate the show, think about the opportunity to do business or refer business to our sponsors. Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Commercial Agent Success Strategies. For incredible commercial agent training, visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Core.green. Use ION technology to create a safer environment for your real estate. Visit core.green. For more commercial real estate intel, forecasts, and strategies, visit CREshow.com.